Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey listeners, Jessica here. Be sure to check out new episodes of Undetermined every Tuesday for free wherever you get your podcasts. For early and ad-free listening, check out Tenderfoot Plus on Apple Podcasts. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals interviewed and participating in the show and do not represent those of Tenderfoot TV and Resonate Recordings. All individuals described or mentioned in the podcast should be considered innocent until found guilty in a court of law. This podcast contains subject matter such as violence and graphic descriptions, which may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. October 2020, the same month Jessica's neighbor Laura sees authorities swabbing a futon and headboard near the driveway of the Durnings residence, a heated text message exchange starts between a man from the Lakeview neighborhood and another individual who he believes to be a fellow neighbor. I guess if you ask like my family or friends, they would probably be like, I'm su- they wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> I'm curious by nature in these types of things and when it happens so close to your home, it tugs on you a little bit more, I guess. It started pretty simple. Like I said, just a neighbor texting someone he believed to be another neighbor. But what it led to is, well, astounding. And now, for the first time, this neighbor is ready to share his story. I felt like I had, uh, I guess, a responsibility or a duty to tell my side and say what happened and, you know, how everything went down. Do you ever wish you could become a detective and help find the clues to the case? How about all of that in a mobile game that you can take anywhere? In June's journey, each scene leads to a new thrilling storyline. Uncover the mystery of June's sister's murder and find out about scandalous family secrets. The gameplay lets you find hidden clues as you investigate a murder mystery. Escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Let your imagination run wild when decorating your island estate and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. 
Whether you're craving a good mystery or looking for an escape, you can immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. I travel so much while working that I personally love to play it while sitting around airports with all of that free time I have. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. In our last episode, we learned how Jessica's sister Audrey formed her own village of sorts within the Lakeview neighborhood, with many Lakeview residents stepping up and helping in this investigation in various ways. But as I had mentioned, there's one other neighbor we spoke with who may arguably hold the biggest piece of evidence in this case that we know of. So we headed over to his Lakeview home to sit down and hear his story. He asked to go by a pseudonym for this podcast. My name is Jay Royce. I live in the neighborhood where uh, Jessica Easterly was found. Jay's involvement in this case started just like his neighbor Laura's when he spotted a Crime Stoppers flyer on a telephone pole near his home. I came across a sign one day on my way home from work and Googled her name because I hadn't heard of the case or her. And uh, that kind of opened a Pandora's box of things online with podcasts and websites and news stories. And I started just kind of doing a little more research and digging into it. As a concerned neighbor, Jay quickly turned into an internet sleuth of sorts. I was apparently living here at the time of it happening and, and no one that I know had heard of it. So it kind of piqued my curiosity a little bit that a body was found not far from my house. It's a little disturbing. I mean, there's no way anyone can feel good about that, especially not knowing officially what happened to her. But it's just an unsettling feeling. He nervously takes a sip of his bourbon on the rocks. As we continue our conversation, holding his lowball glass, he tells us about Lakeview. Yeah, it's a good neighborhood. Uh, I mean, we have your petty theft stuff where, you know, people break into cars here and there. and But something like that is definitely out of the ordinary. 
I mean, it was kind of a, a running thing where it was if you had your car broken into or, or something to report that don't hold your breath while waiting for the police to come and check on it because they, they may not even show up. And that's happened multiple times from what I've heard. Not saying that they're they're bad people or anything like that, but uh, I think they're probably understaffed and overwhelmed and uh, have... It was Jay's lack of faith in the NOPD that led him to continue his online search in an attempt to learn more about Jessica's case. Of course, in his research, he learned of her husband, Justin. He also learned that Justin lived in the neighborhood. So Jay opened up his Nextdoor app, a neighborhood forum of sorts, and that's when he spotted Justin. We had just Googled his name just to see who he was. And um, I noticed on one of these apps, on uh, like a neighborhood app, it was right around the time of her death where he starts posting on this neighborhood app, just trying to be friendly with people and saying, oh yeah, I know about this, know about that. If you need any help, call me. And he would post his number. And nobody's posting their number, ever. And he did that multiple times. And then it all of a sudden had stopped, like right around the time where it was confirmed that it was her. I literally just stopped. He, he had never posted again. Jay was upset about everything he'd read on Jessica's case. And since Justin had posted his phone number in the Nextdoor app, Jay decided to text him. But since he was a stranger to Justin, he didn't really expect a conversation to form, but it did. While the number Jay texted is the same number Justin gave to police when Jessica went missing, and the same number her loved ones had saved as Justin in their phones, it's important to note that we have no way of verifying whether or not Justin was in possession of the phone number at the time of these text messages. Jay shared the original text exchanges with us, and we're going to read the ones we can and have Jay fill in the gaps. I'll have Todd voice Jay Royce's text, and I'll voice the other individual's text. It started on September 20th, 2020. Hey Justin, how you been? Great, struggling a bit. Too bad, better than being in the sandbox though, huh? True. My dog died. And I thought that was kind of funny because I did see his dog being walked in the neighborhood the day before. And I've seen his dog walked subsequently after that as well. I didn't text him anymore at that moment. While the initial text exchange ended at this point, that wasn't the end of their communication. To Jay's surprise, things would continue and become much more personal. For legal reasons, we can only read certain excerpts of the next portion. The texting commenced again on October 15th. Thought your dog was dead. You aren't very Sealer Silence Mortalis. Sleep tight. What the fuck, you lame-ass bitch? LOL, you can't even spell. Fuck you, bitch. As the conversation starts to spiral, Jay makes strong accusations. The unknown individual replies to Jay's accusations, saying, quote, she was cheating. At this point, 
You may be thinking as I am, why would this other individual be so open and candid with a total stranger? Doesn't make sense. Well, it quickly becomes evident that this person was under the impression that Jay was someone they knew very well, saying, quote, you are my best friend. He somehow thought I was his best friend when we were texting. Never questioned who I was. So when I realized that he thought I was somebody else, I decided to press him a little bit. Went at him hard to get him to be a little defensive. He ended up saying that, you know, I didn't kill her. She slipped and fell. Where? In the bathroom. Then how'd she get to the train tracks, bro? I panicked and drove there. You need to come clean and let the family have peace. Why if I'm an incident? We believe the other individual's final message was intended to be, why if I'm innocent? This was the last text exchanged between Jay and the other unknown person. So that's when we uh, knew that there was, that he probably is not, he, he's, a, he's got a screw loose. I wouldn't be surprised if he was high on something in the midst of this, because apparently within a couple of days, he deleted this number and it was no longer his. It was, it belonged to someone else. So how, take me there. How do you know that? Well, I know that for a couple reasons. I know the police officer told me it was someone else's number at that point. And then to verify that, (laughs) we texted the guy and said, you know, who is this? A few days later, Jay calls the number. We called him and he said, this isn't him. And I said, prove you aren't him and call me. So then he called and I could tell by his voice it wasn't him, but it was a kid. Definitely wasn't a man. He's like, I don't know what's going on. Jay reached out to Audrey and Maria and shared screenshots of the text conversation. She was like, holy shit. And (laughs) within about 15 minutes, a detective from NOPD called me to their credit, which I wasn't expecting. And he was trying to set up a time for me to come in and hand over my phone so they could do some uh, forensic analysis on it. So we did that. What was the time frame in which you had your phone in? Just a few days. Yeah, like two or three at the most. And then the police told you specifically that that phone was no longer his? Yeah, and then I wanted to verify that, and I did. Did he define it like, hey, it stopped being his two days after those texts, or...? They didn't get into specifics on that. Apparently, it's one of those like internet numbers where you could like, you know, get rid of quickly or something like that, and request a new one, and it just gets assigned to somebody else who's wanting a new one or something. But I know that whatever he was using, it allowed him to get rid of the number, and move on, and have that number be assigned to someone else. Regardless of who owns the phone number now, Jay believes what he believes. He's learned even more about the case since that text conversation. And over time, he's only become more troubled by everything. But since we are unable to verify that Justin still used that phone number at that time without supporting evidence, there's also a real possibility that this was just simply another person Jay was texting with. There's no real way to know. 
What I can say is that if this was, in fact, a different person, it does seem striking to Todd and I that there were a lot of parallels between the text exchange and what we do know about Jessica and the circumstances surrounding her death. The fact that NOPD took these texts and investigated them seems to show they took this exchange seriously. But I want to be very clear and remind everyone that no charges of any kind have been brought against Justin in relation to Jessica's death. After ending our conversation with Jay, I'm left with so many questions, and it feels more important now than ever before to try and make contact with Justin myself, to see if he may have any insight into all of this, some kind of explanation to this conversation, and all the other things that are left unanswered. We figure there's no better option than to go straight to Justin's front door. I make my way up to the front door while Todd waits in the car. After a few knocks, the door opens. It's not who I expected. Hi, is Justin home? No. He's not? Do you know when he might be back? Um, I haven't heard from him for a week. A week? Yeah, almost a week. I'm greeted by an older Asian man who's tall but hunched over in the doorway. He's shirtless and appears to have just woken up. The door is kept cracked, but I can see a glimpse of the inside. It's dark and still on the other side. It's not clear whether Justin's daughter Grace or his father Justin Sr. are home. Do you know where he might be? Uh, he, he's probably, um, he's on a job site right now, so I'm not sure. Where. In New Orleans? No. Oh, okay. Otherwise, he'd be here. Oh, he's out of town. Okay, okay. I remembered that Laura, Justin and Jessica's neighbor, who we heard from previously, mentioned that a man moved in sometime after Jessica's death. Laura believes the man's name is Bart. Are you Bart by chance? Yeah. Would I you? Know, uh... Actually, I'm a journalist. I'm working on a story okay, about. I'll ask you a question. Yes, I'm, I'm telling you. Um, I'm a journalist. My name's Jessica Knoll, yeah. and I'm working on a story about Jessica. And I had just heard that, you ha- that he had a, a roommate named Bart. That was all. Did you know Jessica? You know, um, I came, um, I met Jessica after she passed away. Oh, okay. Okay. But um, you're totally, you know the people in this neighborhood? Mm-hmm. I will tell you bluntly, and then you'll probably leave. Fuck these people. Why? What's going on? Okay. Same reason you know my name. After Bart slams the door, I leave my business card on the mailbox and then return to the car to update Todd on the encounter. Let's move along for a minute. Okay. Do you hear that? With no luck on our door knock, Todd and I take some time to strategize and make the decision to head back to the hotel and try reaching Justin by other means. Her call has been forwarded to voicemail. Please leave a message. Todd first dials the number for what we believe is Justin's landline. And after several unanswered calls, someone finally answers. This time, it's not Bart, and it's not Justin, but rather Justin Sr., Unfortunately, he seems to have trouble hearing, making the conversation difficult. Justin. Hello. Hello, Justin. Hello. 
Hello, can you hear me? Go ahead. Is this Justin Sr.? Hi, how are you? Uh, how are you doing today? Doing the best I can. Well, hey, my name's Todd McComas, and I wanted to see if I could talk to you for a second. Um, I'm trying to find Justin. Do you know where he's at? Where is he? I'm trying to find Justin, trying to get a hold of him. Do you know where he is or how I can get a hold of him? I assume he's at work. Oh, he's at work? Does he work here local? Oh, you don't know? What kind of work does he do? Does he do construction? I don't know. When was the last time you saw Justin? I don't know. Has it been a while? Like four days, five days? I don't know. A long time? A short time? Hello? He hung up. So no luck via phone either. Back to square one. Over several late-night, caffeine-fueled conversations in our French Quarter hotel room, we remember a name that Justin mentioned before. It was in the body cam audio we listened to a while back. A good friend of mine's a, a prominent lawyer here. I called him, and I was like, Ralph, uh, Whalen's last name. I'm like, Ralph, he goes, I did remember what a reasonable person would believe. I'm like, okay, uh, you know, he goes, what's not reasonable about this? There's nothing reasonable about this. Maybe Ralph will know where we can find Justin. So we look him up. Ralph Whalen is apparently a prominent white-collar criminal defense and personal injury attorney in New Orleans. He's been practicing law since 1971. We thought maybe Justin would be open to a sit-down if his attorney friend was present. So Todd makes a call to Ralph. Hi, Ralph. My name's Todd McComas. Um, I'm calling on about um, an individual that you may or may not be representing. Uh, his name is Justin Durning. Uh, yeah. He's retained your services? Yeah. Okay. Are you generally retained or are you retaining him for a specific matter? Well, he's a friend. Uh, and I mean, I can't even tell you that I'm specifically retained or anything. I've, uh, he's a friend of mine. So. Oh, okay. Uh, who are you? with uh, i'm a retired detective with the indiana state police and uh, todd explains to ralph that we are working on a story regarding jessica and that we would really like to talk to justin if he'd be open to it unfortunately ralph wasn't able to answer our questions but he told us he would pass along our information to justin and said we could follow up with him via email so after their conversation ended i sent an email to ralph but I have yet to receive a response. As it stands, Justin is MIA. After unsuccessfully trying Justin multiple times by various means, we tried to think outside the box. If we couldn't speak with him directly to get our questions answered, maybe his family could give us some insight. We spoke to several members of his extended family and while it helped provide some context to his family's history and roots in the area, it didn't get us any closer to learning what he may have known about the days around Jessica's death and disappearance. The family feels terrible about Jessica and how her family is still left looking for justice. While they may not have been close to her, they still feel a connection. After all, she was Justin's wife. If you remember, we've previously mentioned Justin's second wife, Lauren, 
who he was married to when he first met Jessica. Unfortunately, Lauren was not willing to talk to us for the podcast, but someone who was willing to speak with us was his other ex, Dolores Winslow Lacasio, who is Grace's mom. So I reached out to her, not really knowing what to expect, but I was surprised to find that not only was she open to talking with us, she was very candid about their life together. Dolores doesn't shy away from the fact that over the years, she has had some issues in her life stemming from addiction. And that brings us to the beginning of her and Justin's story. I was uh, 32 at the time, and I was in my first marriage. And I'll just be completely brutally honest, which is that I had an overdose that I had on purpose trying to kill myself. Subsequently, I told the doctor that I needed help with getting off of medication. And so they sent me outpatient day program from eight in the morning to four in the afternoon, kind of like a school for addicts. That's where Justin and I met. Although she admits to battling with addiction back then, Dolores can vividly recount her life by Justin's side. After living together in Louisiana for some time, the couple moved to Arizona, and it was while they were living out west that she found out she was pregnant with Grace. I took a pregnancy test, and I was in the bathroom. He's like, well, what the fuck does it say? And I'm like, he, he broke the door down in Arizona. He's like, mother, whatever. And he took the test, and it like, ping, 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 off of all the sides of the freaking wall. And he punched me right there, like, congratulations. She vividly remembers the look in his eyes that night in the bathroom as she was holding the pregnancy test. The eyes go black and you're looking right through them. It's like their eyes are full of dust. There's no soul, but when you look at them, they don't see you. They're looking, you're looking or they're looking right through you. And it is horrific. Dolores describes a very turbulent relationship with Justin. But this is not the first time we've heard accusations like this made against Justin. We heard similar comments in regards to Justin's second marriage to Lauren. Again, we had reached out to Lauren directly, hoping she'd be open to sharing her story. But she explained she did not want to participate, and I can understand the hesitation. But we were able to obtain a copy of a petition that Lauren filed for domestic abuse protection order with the Justice Court of Gulfport, Mississippi. We requested a copy of that restraining order from the Gulfport Police Department, but there was no order of protection on file. However, in her sworn statement in that petition, dated August 3, 2011, Lauren stated that on July 12, 2011, Justin attacked and choked her inside their home. She checked a box on that petition that states, Petitioner submits there exists immediate and present danger of abuse. She also checked the box that states that a divorce is pending. The Gulfport police were unable to locate any record of this domestic abuse protective order, which could simply mean that the request was not granted by the court and therefore no order was given to the police. Or the order may have been granted but has since expired. In some cases, 
police departments purge records after a few years, depending on what they are. Either way, no record was on file with the police. But they did send us a copy of a police report from May 26, 2009, in which Justin was arrested for the offense, quote, unlawful for convicted felon to possess any firearms, which followed a felony conviction for prescription fraud in Jefferson Parish, Louisiana. Further, jail records show that on August 16, 2011, Justin was arrested and charged in Harrison County, Mississippi, on a domestic violence charge. We have requested that report. While we're on the topic of records, there was one item that comes up many times in conversations about Justin, his military record. If Justin had in fact served in the military, I wanted to be able to confirm this important chapter in his life. So we made public records requests through multiple veteran and military agencies, including the Department of Justice and the National Archives personnel records. Based on the information we provided in those requests, there were no military records of any branch of service that could be verified for Justin Durning Jr. As we continue our conversation with Dolores, she tells us that after the incident in the bathroom, she and Justin's relationship began to sour. But eventually, the couple moved back to Louisiana. When we came back from Arizona, that was the end of our relationship. You know, when somebody's sitting right next to you, but for all purposes, they could be on another planet. He was there physically, but he had gone. He was gone. I call him a narcissist because he fits just the profile. Not because I'm like this mean, angry ex. Yes, I'm angry over a lot of things. But is he wanted something. He was being so nice. And he picked me up and he um he brought me over to see Grace. And not thinking, I didn't think it was going to be the last time. And she was beautiful. But I could all, already see the distance coming. She didn't recognize me, you know, that short of a time. And then I held her and she smiled. And then guess who drives up? It's Justin's mom. What they wanted was a long form of my birth certificate because they wanted to get child care benefits or money. And then they wanted me to sign a paper for temporary custody. And I said, not on your life. He said, oh, well, F you, because guess what? When... The cops arrested you. You signed over custody. I said, Justin, now that's a good one. Put that one in the books. I said, please don't make you sign over custody. You're full of shit. And then he was mad. That'll be the last time you ever see me or this kid. Yeah, well, you're right. Fast forward to 2019, when Dolores heard about Jessica's death, she went straight to the NOPD to help in any way she could. Having had a close relationship to Jessica's husband, she figured she could give them some insight. But according to Dolores, talking to the NOPD was a pretty fruitless effort. He was very dismissive, and he said, look, we've already solved it. I said, so basically, I'll just say it. You're thinking what? Junkie whore goes to cop dope and deal goes wrong and guy breaks her neck 
and leaves her and she falls without her shoe in the wound position? He goes, you're being sarcastic? I said, of course, absolutely, because that's a ridiculous theory. I said, the truth of the matter is, this is someone's daughter, okay? And this is bullshit. I don't care that you think you have to prioritize because there's five zillion murders. This woman is important. She's a sister. She is a daughter. She was a wife and she was a stepmother to my child. They need to take this shit into account. As you can hear in her voice, the weight of her past still spills over into her present, despite being in a much better place in life these days. But everything she's experienced has helped her gain a newfound perspective. The first narrative you hear, unfortunately, is usually the one you believe. It's all about perception, because everyone has a different perception of the truth. Think about it, because everyone has a reason and everyone has a motive. Justice will be served. Karma needs to happen. Maybe not in my life, but somebody's time. No matter how obvious it all seems to Dolores, this case remains undetermined and is in dire need of some answers. It still feels like the one person in this who could possibly hold some answers is Justin. But as for our efforts to find Justin while in New Orleans, door knocks, phone calls, emails and text messages, well, unfortunately for now, they're all a bust. One of the reasons we had hoped to speak to Justin was simply to get his story. But another reason we wished to speak with him was because at this point, more than 500 days since Jessica's death, he'd yet to claim her remains from the coroner. And her family was desperate to have at least that. Even Jay Royce, the neighbor we spoke to at the beginning of this episode, has an opinion when it comes to this topic. Her poor family was wanting closure and, and just wanting, you know, to be able to have a ceremony of some sorts. You know, someone dies, you have a funeral. That's what you do. He had the sole decision power on allowing her to stay in the morgue. Why would you do that? Even if he couldn't afford a funeral, then why not just release it to the family so they could do it? It, it made no sense. Again, we haven't been able to speak with Justin about this or about anything. Like I said, he's MIA at this time. But in an interesting turn of events, his absence might just lead to a bit of resolution. Out of the blue, Jessica's sister Audrey receives a phone call. Not from Justin, but from the coroner's office. The coroner called me and asked me if my name was Audrey Schmidt, and I said yes. And I said, can we have Jessica? He said, well, he goes, I'm going to have to make it legal and send Justin legal notices. I was like, okay. I was like, well, can you give me a timeline? He said, I cannot give you a timeline. I felt like, oh my God, finally, they're releasing her to us.
Undetermined is a production of Resonate Recordings and Tenderfoot TV in conjunction with Cadence 13, written and hosted by me, Jessica Knoll, and produced by Dennis Cooper and Todd McComas, with additional production by Whitney Bozarth. Executive producers are Dennis Cooper, Mark Minnery, Jacob Bozarth, Donald Albright, and Payne Lindsay. Our senior producer is John Street. Editing, mixing, mastering, and sound design by Caleb Melcher, Dayton Cole, and Pat Kicklider of the Resonate Recordings team. If you have a podcast or are looking to start one, check us out at ResonateRecordings.com. Our theme song and original score is by Dirt Poor Robbins, with additional scoring by Dayton Cole. Our cover art is by Station 16. You can follow Undetermined Podcast on Facebook and on Twitter at Undetermined Pod. Show notes as well as bonus content can be found on our website, undeterminedpod.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please take time to subscribe, rate, and review. Your feedback is greatly appreciated. And finally, if you have any information about this case, call Crime Stoppers at one 877 903 7867